Well, good morning. We are in a series called Exiles, a study through 1 Peter. This is Peter's first letter to the church, and so if you have your Bible, go ahead and turn there. Last week, to illustrate the theme of 1 Peter, I used the illustration of what cows do when they sense a storm is coming. They, they scatter and they walk in the opposite direction. By contrast, buffalo, they huddle together and they actually walk into the storm. It shortens the duration of the storm. It also gives them added protection because they're, they're together and they're warm. And so we want to be like buffalo and not like cows. We're going to endure together the hardships and the opposition that we face in this life. Today in 1 Peter chapter 2, in the first 10 verses, we're going to see a command followed by an explanation for how to accomplish that command. You say, what's the command? Very simple, grow up. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 1, Therefore rid yourselves of all malice and all deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and slander of every kind. Like newborn babies, crave pure spiritual milk, so that by it you may grow up in your salvation. Now, Peter doesn't phrase this as an imperative here, but it's clearly his desire for these believers. He's concerned because some of these believers don't appear to have gotten past the baby stage of Jesus. And he fears that if, if they remain as spiritual toddlers, then they're not going to be able to endure the persecution and the ups and downs that are coming their way. Can I ask, are you a little like that? Are you the kind of person who is spiritually hot one moment and cold the next? You go to a camp or a Christian conference, you spend some time with a spiritual friend, you hear a great preacher, and, and you get spiritually hot, but, but then it just kind of fades one minute you're, you're really consistent and really confident in your faith, the next you're, you're filled with all sorts of questions and doubts. One minute you're praying fervently, the next you're unsure if any of this is even true. Peter says that, that if that's you, it's because you haven't grown up yet. I've always thought that Peter's analogy with young children here is, is really helpful. Think about kids in light of what he says in verse 1. Malice, envy, hatred. Think about it. Kids can be unstable in their emotions, right? They can go from the highest of highs to the lowest of lows just like that. When, when my kids were younger, actually, who am I kidding? They still do this. If, when my kids, if you take a toy away from them, they go into a frenzy, but if you give them a popsicle or, or, or you uh, show them a, a funny video, what, what happens? They start laughing. They go from one extreme to the other really fast. Sometimes the emotions are even mixed together. Where they're laughing and crying at the same time, parents, you know what I'm talking about? You're like, I, can't, I don't know, are, are you happy? Are you sad? What's going on? Many Christians are like that. They can be on top of the world spiritually, overflowing with the love of God, and then the slightest little thing, could be a little financial trouble, could be a relational breakdown, could be a spiritual setback. It upsets them and it makes them question everything. Now, most adults aren't like that. Adults are, are more steady in their emotional stamina. Kids can be insecure. Kids need constant reassurance that their parents care about them and aren't going anywhere. My youngest son, Jude, has a real attachment to his mom, to the point that if she's gone, 
For like two or three minutes, he's asking, where's mom? Where's mom? Where's mom? Doesn't matter about dad. Dad's trash, but mom's where it's at. One time when he was around three, uh, Tara left to go to the grocery store, and after like five minutes, he's, you know, real worried. Where's mom at? Where's mom at? And I'll be honest, I got a little annoyed, and I just said, well, she's, she's left forever. Now, he seemed to know that I was kidding, but my middle child, who was around five at the time, gets real big eyes and goes, she left forever? Baby Christians are like that. That they're insecure about the goodness and the promises of God, and when something bad happens, they're like, why? What, what? God, where are you? Or if, if we're driving and I let my kids know that we're going to Bucky's. Now, if, if you don't know what Bucky's is, you're missing out. Bucky's is like the world's greatest gas station. There's a ton of them in Texas. They're kind of branching out into some of the other states, but it's like over 100 gas pumps, 30 to 60,000 square feet of retail space, the cleanest bathrooms you will ever find on the road. It's, it's one of God's great gifts to mankind. If you haven't gone, you need to go to Bucky's. But we'll be driving, and my kids will be like, are, are, we, are we stopping at Bucky's now? Are, are we going to stop at Bucky's now? And Christians are like that. My kids don't think that I'm going to really fulfill my promise to them. How many Christians say, God, if you don't fulfill this promise now, if you don't do this miracle now, then, then I assume you're not real or, or that you don't really love me? You see, baby Christians need constant miracles and, and, and these warm fuzzies to, to feel like God's real. And, and that's why a lot of people flock to churches that promise that. Or how about this one? Kids are gullible. Kids will believe anything. A few years ago, I was watching a baseball game on TV, and we have DVR, and so it was late in the game, and, and this, this clutch at bat guy hits a home run to take the lead in the ninth inning. So I, I rewinded a little bit, and I, I called my son. I said, hey, come, let, let's watch the end of this game. And the, the batter gets up, and I said, Caleb, I, I bet he hits a home run right here. And Caleb's like, oh, no way, no way. I said, watch. We watch it. He hits a home run. He's like, how, how did you know that was going to happen? Kids are gullible. The Apostle Paul says that, that a lot of Christians are like this. In Ephesians 4, verse 14, Paul says to the Ephesians, you're like children. You get blown around by, by every wind of doctrine. There are a lot of Christians who are a sucker for, for a powerful speaker, a miracle story, the, the latest best-selling book. You, you'll believe any, any teacher with a, with a slick production or a good worship band. I can tell you one of the things that, that I've discovered in ministry is a lot of people will leave churches for really immature reasons. A lot of people treat church like Goldilocks. They go in and they say, well, you know, this church, the worship's too loud. This church, the worship's too soft. This worship's just right. Or this preacher, he's too boring. This preacher, he's too angry. Oh, this one's just right. Or the coffee at this church is too strong. The coffee at this church is too weak. But oh, this one is just right. And because they're still immature spiritually, that, that's all that they can discern. They're, they're still infants. One more. Kids can be possessive. Every parent knows that one word declaration that defines arguments with their young siblings. Mine. Mine. I hold tightly to, to what I want because my happiness depends on it. If my kids want something that the other one has, that they feel like it's like, like the quality of their life from that point forward depends on whether or not they have that thing. 
I want, I, I want that toy. I want that Lego piece. I want that trading card. It doesn't matter that there's 307 others scattered on the floor. That's the one that I want that's going to make me happy. And when Christians are like that, it leads to this list in verse 1 that Peter's telling us to rid ourselves of. Malice, all deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and all slander. These come from a, a childish, insecure, possessive way of looking at the world. Many Christians are unstable in their emotions, insecure, gullible, and really possessive of their stuff. And Peter tells them, you need to grow up. Now, why is that so important? Because living in a harsh world like ours requires a grown-up hope. Not those warm, fuzzy feelings and a constant stream of signs and wonders. Needing those, those warm fuzzies and constant miracles, that is not a sign of spiritual hunger. Rather, it's a sign of spiritual immaturity. You need a grown-up, unwavering faith that is built on the rock-solid hope of the empty tomb. That's the command. Next, he tells you how. One of the things I love so much about Peter is that he doesn't just smack you upside the head, but he gives you four practical ways to grow up. Number one, drink the word. Verse two says, like newborn babies crave pure spiritual milk so that by it you may grow up in your salvation now that you have tasted that the Lord is good. That's a quote from Psalm 34, verse eight. Babies grow by drinking milk, lots of it, several times a day. Not one glass on Sunday and another glass the next Sunday, all day, every day, several times a day. And that's what Christians need to do with the word, Peter says. Imagine if a mother fed her baby only once a week. What would happen to her baby? If it even survived, it would likely be malnourished and, and have severe growth defects. And so in these verses, Peter gives three qualities of the word that explains why it is so necessary for our lives. First, the word is imperishable. We saw this last week at the end of chapter 1, verse 23. Peter said, you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable. All people are like grass, and all their glory is like the flowers of the field. The grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of the Lord endures forever. Everything else is temporary, but the word of God is forever. If you build your life on anything else, could be the uh, approval of people, the strength of your family, the love of your spouse, your financial security, you will feel insecure and constantly anxious. Whatever it is, it will eventually fade. And if your life is built on it, so will you. I don't know if you've ever seen these YouTube videos that are kind of popular right now. What they do is, is they'll take some teenagers and they'll put them in a room and they'll, they'll give them headphones and they'll play them a series of songs from like 10 years ago, 15 years ago, 20 years ago. And they just film them and watch their reactions. I'm not talking about obscure songs. I'm talking about songs that were radio hits, songs that were on the Billboard Top 100 that most of us would be familiar with. And these kids have no clue at all. And the looks on their faces, like, what is this that I'm hearing right now? It just goes to show that what seems permanent in one generation is forgotten or mocked in the next. There's a generation of kids right now growing up who have no idea who's responsible for 
We've got a group of, of students growing up right now, junior high students, who don't know who Michael Jordan is. What's solid and permanent in one generation is gone and forgotten by the next. And the only way to find permanence in your life is to build it on the Word of God. Second, he says that the Word is living. The Bible is not just a book of theological doctrines and truth, but it's the, the living, breathing Word of God. In, in this book, you encounter the very Word of God. It's the voice of God. It, it's the same voice that created the stars, that healed lepers, gave sight to the blind, and raised the dead. The, the Scripture is not just about learning the ancient truth. It's about God speaking to you in real time with real direction and putting that kind of life into your soul. Without that, your soul will shrivel and die. Third, the word gives you confidence. Look at chapter 2, verse 3. You see where he says, now that you have tasted and seen that the Lord is good? Now, let me give you a little interpretive tip to help you read 1 Peter. Throughout the book, Peter interchanges word of God and the person of Jesus seamlessly. For example, at the end of chapter 1, Peter is talking about building our lives upon the Word, and then in chapter 2, he shifts to the rock we build on being Jesus. For Peter, the Word and Jesus are the same. In the Word of the Gospel, you meet Jesus, who gives you a taste that the Lord is good. He teaches you that in all things you can trust Him. And Jesus, you see that at your very worst moment, Jesus still loved you, and you know that if he loved you then, he will not leave you now. That's so what Peter says is, nourish yourself constantly on the good gospel word. Drink it like the milk that a baby drinks to survive. Without it, they'll be severely undernourished. The sad reality is that for some of you, the only Bible you ever read is at 9.15 on Sunday. So let me ask, do you have a quiet time? What I mean is, do you have a daily time where, where you pour the word of God into your life? If not, I can guarantee you are shriveling up spiritually. I don't care how long you've been a Christian. I don't know, I don't care how many facts of the Bible you know. If you're not hearing the voice of God on a regular basis, your soul is shriveling you need the constant intake of the imperishable, life-giving Word of God. Listen, 10% of everything Jesus is recorded as saying is a quotation of previous Scripture. 10%. He was saturated in it. Are you? As a Christian at any age, but especially a younger one, the most important thing you need is a steady diet of God's good and perishable gospel word. Now, before we go on to number two, just real quick, let's have some real talk here. But what if I'm just not feeling it? Right? Or what if you don't find yourself craving the word like a newborn infant? I've been there before. I want to share with you a little prayer I learned that, that I found helpful. It's called praying the IOUs. These phrases are taken directly from the Psalms, and they are great things to pray when you feel spiritually dry. I, incline my heart to your understanding. O, open my eyes that I may see wonderful things in your word. You, unite my heart 
to fear your name. S, satisfy me in the morning with your unfailing love. The second step we can take to grow is to establish your foundation. It's Jesus. Verse 5, you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For in Scripture it says, See, I lay a stone in Zion, a chosen and precious cornerstone, and the one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. That's a quote from Isaiah 28, 16. Part of drinking the word is establishing your foundation. A foundation is what you build your life on. A key word to underline in that verse is cornerstone. Now, I'm no builder, but I know this. The cornerstone is the most important stone. It's the foundation stone. The cornerstone holds together all of the other stones. They all fit back into that piece. And so if the cornerstone is stable, then the rest of the building is going to be okay. Martin Luther, commenting on this passage, he said that for each of our lives, we have a cornerstone. Your cornerstone is whatever you build the rest of your life on. It's your anchor, your foundation. It's what you turn to when when the rest of your life starts to crumble. In other words, when your life begins to fall apart, what do you retreat back into to tell yourself that it's going to be okay? That there's hope. That everything's going to be okay in the future. Do you find yourself thinking, well, I still got plenty of money, so I'll probably be okay. If so, then money is your foundation. Do you think, well, I've got a strong family. If so, then marriage and family is your foundation. Is that I'm a good person and and good people usually win. Well, then then your goodness is your foundation. Peter tells you that, that if your foundation is anything else but Jesus, your life will be characterized by instability. Manifested in all those things laid out in verse 1. Malice, envy, hatred, deceit, hypocrisy, slander, and many other things. Look at what he says in verse 7. Now to you who believe, this stone is precious. But to those who do not believe, the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. That's from Psalm 118, verse 22. Jesus will be, verse 8, a stone you either build your life on or one that causes people to stumble, a rock that makes them fall. Either you will build your life on Jesus, or the kingship of Jesus will ultimately crush you. We're going to come back to that, but but I want to make one thing clear at this point. For you to make any progress in the Christian life, your life has to have a foundation, a cornerstone, a rock that sustains you in any and every storm you find yourself in. Jesus is the only Solid foundation. Number three, embrace your identity. Verse nine, but you are. So so this is who you are now. A chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession. Establishing your foundation will lead you to embracing your new identity. I want to talk for a moment about this massively important concept of identity. Identity, simply stated, is your self-definition of who you are, what you value, and the role you're here to play. I've always found this definition to be really helpful. 
your identity is what the most important person in your life thinks about you. Did you catch that? Your identity is what the most important person or people in your life think about you. Who is that for you? Most of us, we live our lives plagued with the question, am I enough? And trying to prove to ourselves and others that, that we are enough. Am I man enough? Am I strong enough? Am I smart enough? Am I pretty enough? Am I talented enough? Am I skinny enough? And, and the point of just about every TV uh, advertisement we see is to convince us that we're not enough. You're not a good enough mom unless you use this brand. You're not a good enough husband unless you buy this jewelry. You're not good enough unless you take this vacation. You hear it every day. You're not yet blank enough. When she cheats, it's because you weren't husband enough. When, when he looks at, at pornography, it's because you weren't a good enough wife. When, when the kids ruin their lives, it's because you didn't do well enough. And even if you are enough now, you fear that one day you won't be. Michael Jordan was the greatest player of his generation, but one day he will be forgotten. Michael Phelps was the, the greatest swimmer of all time, but, but that won't last forever. My family loves the movie, The Greatest Showman. It's a fictional account of P.T. Barnum's rise to success. There's a moving scene where his prospective father-in-law tells him that he'll never be good enough for his daughter. He says, she'll see that and one day come back. She'll grow tired of the poor life that you're able to give her. And that played into a deep insecurity that P.T. Barnum had, one that we all have. See, no matter how successful Barnum was, he was never satisfied. His wife begged him to realize that, that he was good enough, but he just couldn't shake it. The American College Health Association has noted the rising anxiety in this generation of students entering college. And they say that it's because the primary message that children receive is that they better be the best at everything or else they won't make it. And that is made exponentially worse by social media, but by Instagram because everybody's creating their own fake best version of themselves and comparing it with everybody else's fake version. And so everybody's afraid to share their insecurities and their inadequacies. And what Peter is telling us is that we can stop this, this frantic race to the top. Because Jesus is our foundation, we have a new identity. You are, verse 9, a chosen people, he says. God chose you to be in his family. What's more, you're a royal priesthood. In Israel, which was the chosen people, there is a specially chosen line of royalty, the line of Judah. And there was a separate, specially chosen line of the priesthood, the tribe of Levi. Peter says in Jesus, you're all of these. You are the chosen of the chosen of the chosen. He continues, God's special possession. You are a valued possession that God purchased with his own blood. The king of kings set his affection on you and has a plan for your life. Friend, what more do you need to be enough? You're not enough because you're more remarkable than someone else. Or because you rose to the top. Or because you're better. But because of who loves you, who stands behind you, and who has called you to serve him. I want those of you who are younger, high school students, college students, middle school students, you will never win enough 
to feel like you're enough. And the good news is you don't have to because Jesus won for you. He values you and he promises to have a plan to use you for good. And I'm telling you, that's enough. Every one of us has to choose what we're going to build our identity on. Is it being strong enough, pretty enough, strong, uh, athletic enough, popular enough, rich enough, righteous enough? Or is our identity because of who we are in Christ? If you build your identity on anything other than Jesus, you'll always be insecure. But if your identity is in Jesus, you will have a rock that can weather any storm. You'll be able to make a positive contribution to our world, like stones being built in his temple. Now listen to me before we move on to our last point. Some of you desperately need to hear this. You need to release yourself from the self-imposed obligation to be enough for others. Ladies, you will never be wife enough to save him. Man, men, you can never be husband enough to keep her home at night. Sons, you can't be son enough to make your insecure dad proud. Ladies, you cannot ever be daughter enough to please your pride-filled parents. You cannot be their savior. They need Jesus to fill the insecurity in their lives. You just need to be who God created you to be. Fulfill his purpose in your life and let his affirmation and his approval be your identity. Your identity will be the most important thing about you. It will shape how you respond to everything else in the Christian life. The confidence you have in adversity, the optimism in the face of opposition, the hope you feel in trial. Number four, live out your purpose. Verse nine continues, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you drink the word, establish your foundation, embrace your identity, you are ready to live out your purpose. Our job is to declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. I love Peter's imagery here. In Genesis, God created the world ex nihilo, out of nothing. Nothing existed and then God created everything. That's you. You were unrighteous, dead in your sin, and then God made you alive and made you righteous in Christ. Declare that. Proclaim it. You are here to declare his praises, not yours. In verse 11, he reminds us that we are foreigners, we're exiles. We're just passing through. We don't care how many people know our name. We only care how many people know his name. And that's the role for every single one of us, no matter how many days we have left. You know, our church family has experienced a lot of loss in the last couple of weeks. There's grief. There's sadness. But, but death has a way of making us confront what really matters in life, doesn't it? It helps us clarify our, our values and our priorities and what we truly believe. And I'm grateful that the loved ones we've lost have shown us that the measure of our lives is not how many people know your name, but how many people you cause to know his name. This is the purpose that God has intended for you, and you will never grow up spiritually until you've embraced it. Finding your purpose is one of the most important things about you. 
It's an essential understanding of this that, that enables you to grow up to be who God created you to be. So these four actions all tie together in the process of growing up. Drinking the word, establishing your foundation, embracing your identity, and living out your purpose. Let me close with Peter's warning. Peter says that, that this word, this hope, this new identity is offered to you in Jesus, the cornerstone. He's ready for all of you who would come to receive him, but if you don't receive him, the cornerstone turns into the rock that crushes you. On June 24th this year, at approximately 1.25 a.m., the Champion Towers, the Chaplain Towers South, which was a 12-story beachfront condo in Surfside, Florida, suddenly collapsed, killing 98 people, making it the third deadliest structural engineering failure in U.S. history. Relief and rescue efforts got underway immediately, but there was fear that the remaining structure would collapse and there was incoming storms and, and rains that just slowed down their efforts leaving loved ones and family wondering if they would ever find those crushed beneath the rubble. How could something like this happen? An investigation revealed that long-term decay of the concrete structural support at ground level was the main contributing factor. You see, the issue wasn't the housing units themselves. It was what they were built upon. What makes this story even more tragic is that these problems had been reported in 2018, and again, in April of 2021, they were noted as being much worse. But nothing was done to address the problems. For some of you, the problems in your life come from a faulty foundation. You've made your foundation something other than Jesus. And out of his grace and out of his mercy, God, through the apostle Peter, is warning you He's pointing out your problems. He's pointing out your faulty foundation, and he's pointing you to Jesus. Jesus told a parable of two builders. There was one builder, builder who built his house upon the sand. There was another builder who built his house upon the rock. When the storms came and the winds picked up and, and the rain came down, the house that was built on the sand was destroyed. But the house that was built on the rock survived. Both houses endured the storm. Both of them felt the, the, the rushing waves and, and the wind and the rain. But only one, the one on the rock, did not collapse. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. On Christ the solid rock I stand. All other ground is sinking sand. All other ground is sinking sand. What are you building your life on? Let's pray. God, we thank you for Jesus, our cornerstone. God, we thank you that for those of us who have placed our faith and our trust in Jesus, we can live secure and confident lives, not trying to be good enough, not trying to be smart enough. We can know that our identity is in Jesus. We don't have to try to achieve. We don't have to try to, to, to work to, to be good enough or to win anyone's favor, including yours, because Jesus has already done that for us. 
God, I pray that we would be a people who are so saturated with your word that when people cut us, we bleed scripture. That we know how to respond when opposition comes, when when hardships come, because we know your word. We know what you're building us into. We know the future that we have. We know that this world is not our home. So God, for those of us in here who belong to you, for those of us who are a chosen people, a holy priesthood, for for those of us who are your special possession, help us to embrace our identity. But God, I also want to pray for those here today who do not know Jesus as their Lord and Savior. The people in this room whose foundation of their lives is built on something else. It's built on their goodness. It's built on their family. It's built on their career. God, I pray today would be the day that they understand that you're warning them that the only foundation that will truly weather the storms of life is one that's built upon Jesus. If there's anybody who who needs to make that declaration, who needs to to say that I I want Jesus to save me, I I want a fresh start, I, I want... I want Jesus to change my life. I pray that they would, they would make that decision today and you would give them the boldness and the confidence to do so. Thank you for your grace. Thank you for Jesus. It's in his name that we pray. Amen.